welcome to That HR Podcast. I'm Lauren Brown, and in this month's slightly different but very special episode, I'm in Manchester for the CIPD's annual conference and exhibition. I'm going to be speaking with some of the leading thinkers in attendance about the different trends they've spotted over the last 12 months in HR and about what the future of the people profession might look like. So grab a cuppa, get comfy, and let's go and see what's going on. So I'm here with Shati Banerjee. You've just been part of an incredibly interesting discussion about predictive analytics and their place in HR. Could you tell us, our listeners a little bit about your role, where you've come mm-hmm. from and the kind of work that you do? Yeah, I'm uh, the leadership assessment lead uh, in the HR data analytics team at Shell and I'm responsible for leadership assessments that cut across the whole company um, and very much partner with our uh, data scientists and analytics team to look at you know, what are the, the problems that our leaders are trying to solve? Uh, how can we bring data insights to help with drive uh, evidence-based HR? Yeah, absolutely. So what would you say to people? Because, I mean, this the talk was called Demystifying Predictive Analytics, and it seems like the people almost get quite stressed when it comes mm. to st- statistics. How, how do you recommend people start this process? Uh, I would say keep it simple. Uh, think about the real business issues that you are facing as an organization uh-huh. and so for Shell one of our early wins was linking HR data to safety so safety is absolutely fundamental yeah. to us and so it was a no-brainer that as soon as we found these associations they would resonate uh-huh. uh, across the organization yeah absolutely absolutely so do you think obviously Shell's an enormous company and you've got that capability what about smaller businesses how how does that how does the how does it change? Um, I think you can still think about what are your uh, business issues and how can data provide better insights. Uh-huh. You know, I think even at a small scale, uh, you can look to buy in. Uh, I help on about this validated assessments. Yeah. You know, there are some really poor quality tools, diagnostic tools out uh-huh. there. Uh-huh. And unless you know that they work, they're measuring what you think they're measuring. Yeah. There's no point in having them. And so I would say clear them all out bring in validated and reliable assessments so that you're improving the quality of your data and then at least even if you're a small organization you can look at trends within those data sets and that seemed to be like a key takeaway at the end of like actually you don't have to do this all on your own like this doesn't have to be this enormous beast where you're building this system there are validated systems out there that can help you along yeah. Obviously, with panel discussions like this, it's always like, oh, what did we get out of it? But actually, I guess you're part of the discussion too. Was there anything that came up there that you know you'd not really thought of before? How did you find it as a as a discussion? Um, yeah, it was it was great to partner with AstraZeneca actually because yeah. I think they've been on a very similar journey to us, uh-huh. um, and the way we work is quite similar. Yeah. And so you know, it's linking to business solving, uh, business issues. We have very similar methodology, and so it was actually quite refreshing to know that actually other people are doing it (laughs) okay we're not so off the mark Uh, so my name's Danny Mortimer, I'm the Chief Executive of NHS Employees. Uh, some of the content has been great, John Amici in particular okay, was, what was, was fantastic. What, what, what did you take he away was, from that? He talked, I'm, uh, I, I think there were a couple of things, that there, there, were, there was, I think in particular he challenged us all to think about values 
a bit more critically uh-huh. and I think pointed out to us that there's a risk that we use them as a branding exercise rather than a culture change tool and the second thing he talks about making virtue of the fact that he's six foot ten is that we're small people particularly compared to him but we're in big roles and, yeah. and actually he, I think he spoke to the purpose and potential impact of HR in a really powerful way yeah, actually in absolutely. a way that I've not heard uh-huh. many people do. So I'm joined now by uh, Megan Marie Butler from Cognition X and you are the AI analyst for HR. Can you tell me a little bit about the work you do? That's an interesting question. I feel like I make it up day by day. (laughs) uh, So my work is looking at the AI AI market, focusing in on products for HR, so all the way from talent acquisition um, through HR management, learning and development, organizational design and effectiveness, um, and uh, health and safety I'm trying to draw in on the side as well because I still feel that needs to be a part of HR. Uh Absolutely. And just kind of looking at all the different products out there, understanding how specifically AI technologies are being used within each area so each month I kind of do a deep dive into different topics mm-hmm. figure out what's going on um, how AI technologies are being implemented um, what kind of effect it's having so sometimes we see it as cost uh, cost saving or time saving or that it's um, improving engagement yeah. so understanding that and then understanding what products are out there and uh, what they're doing and trying to map that market because it is yeah. uh, very confusing and uh, muddy waters to yeah. navigate for anybody. Absolutely, I think that's why we had such a full room here because it is one of those topics where so much comes under this umbrella term of AI mm. and it's this popular term. But how important do you think it is now to go, go more specific? Oh, it's definitely important to be um, getting deeper into it. And um, as we kind of mentioned during the panel, AI is is kind of a it's almost becoming a dirty word because it is very confusing if you look at the history of it the definitions of it it's mostly about an area of research and um, a theoretical idea it's not really a thing uh-huh. but there's a lot of technologies that are real that fit underneath it so uh-huh. the NLP link uh, NLP so uh, understanding and being able to create speech with people, um, a new way to interact with technology, um, facial recognition systems or um, emotion recognition systems that we see in video interviewing, um, and decision and decision support mechanisms, so where we get into more of the machine learning and when we start looking at analytics, looking at more predictive and prescriptive analytics, so getting deeper into that because we're able to apply um, very difficult mathematical statistics to bigger data sets. So it is important to understand that um, and understand the different technologies involved because that is where the impact's coming in. So how are those technologies being used within an HR function or within a within a product to solve which problem? You know, the phrase AI, it makes it seem like, so there's going to be a robot at work. Whereas it actually, it, like, like we were saying here, people have probably encountered AI this morning. They yeah. probably, it's already in the workplace. Yeah. What kind of forms is it taking? Yeah, well, it's in our lives every day. And right now I'm just absolutely fascinated because we're seeing commercials on television that are talking about the new TV with AI in it or how Microsoft is bringing AI to the world. But we've been dealing with it day in, day out for quite some time. When you talk to your Amazon Alexa, when you um, get a recommendation on yeah. uh, Amazon or Netflix, all of that's using AI and machine learning. 
thing uh -huh. to help understand what people are doing, what someone like you is likely to buy or wants to watch next, and then yeah. giving a recommendation on it. So my first time here at the CRPD conference. Yeah. Um, I'm a career changer, so it's really insightful for me to gain um, so much information from wonderful exhibitors and uh, experienced professionals, um, which I'd never be able to gain elsewhere. Uh -huh. And like the atmosphere is fantastic, isn't it? How are you finding just the event generally? I've been so uh, humbled by the fact that yeah. the professionals that I've met and networked with have been so generous with their time. The opportunities that I've been able to garner from them yeah. through uh, potential placements as a HRM student yeah. uh, has been really, really helpful. After kicking off this year's event, Signposting HR is the moral compass of a business, we managed to catch up with the CIPD's very own Chief Executive, Peter Cheese. For us, all of these constructs, I think, create a, a very interesting future for our profession. But as we've been saying consistently, but we've got to step up. We as the professional body have got to make sure that we are enabling that shift. And part of it is, is looking at how we develop the skills and capabilities within the profession. And, if you will, the way in which we approach business in a different way from perhaps we've approached it in the past. And I think that's really exciting. It's a really exciting opportunity. I think a lot of this just applies to you know, everybody in the company more generally. It seems like the role of HR is actually what we're listening to and hearing at the talks that like we're seeing today. It's affecting everyone and they have to be that kind of moral compass, I yeah, guess, of the company. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, this is the interesting thing about HR, isn't it? Is, is, uh, over many years I've talked about it with different business leaders. I mean, HR is everybody's business in some mm. way, isn't it? it, it it's, it's different from something like finance. I mean, yeah, we all kind of need to understand a bit of finance, but, but none of it, well, none of us, most of us wouldn't say we're experts. And I've got the expert community over here that'll help me you know, do what I need to mm. do. HR, I mean, everybody, for good HR to work, you've got to have all of your line managers you know, delivering it. I mean, HR, therefore, I think is, is very much about an enabling function. This is other things that we try to help with the shift of thinking is HR too much in the past has thought of, of itself as a controlling function. So I've got to manage the risk of the organization. I've got to write all these rules. Um, and then we end up with, as I've described, with sedimentary layers of policies and rules which actually make little sense and do not engender, you know, to go back to the trust question, don't engender any sense of trust because I'm telling you that I don't trust you because there's all rules. So it's shifting to, to seeing HR as an enablement function and we do need to be experts on people and work and change. But then a lot of the enablement will be through how do we train managers at all levels to understand some of these constructs. And if, if I take a simple example around... Yeah, diversity and inclusion. It, it, that works when you've trained the managers to understand what it means to manage a diverse team and that you've helped them understand things like unconscious bias or all these other things. Now, HR needs to understand those things, needs to understand what actions and interventions work based on good evidence, which certainly in that case would include you know, neuroscience, Babel science, and so forth, and then train the people in the organization to make sure that we are there therefore really dri driving and delivering on a principle of say inclusion um, so that it, it's how you bring these things together but you know some some people might say well if, you, if you've got all the managers to do all this perfectly would you need hr mm. and i said well absolutely you would okay. because you still need that core of expertise mm. and, and what we're trying to do is make that clearer what that expertise really is um, and then help to as i say position hr and L&D and all these functions as an enabling capability 
um, to an organisation. Um, and I, you know, for my part, I, I think that capability becomes more and more important in, in the world that we are describing now. You add up all the stuff that's going on, you know, the yeah. big business mantra today is agility yeah. and adaptability. Because if things are changing, then you've got to be able to respond and you've got to be agile and adaptive in your response. What's HR's role in that? Well, to me, it's fundamental because it's everything from how you empower people, the trust idea, yeah. um, the culture that you're creating, um, how you create you know, some of the mechanisms to engage people across the organization to develop new ideas and ways of thinking, yeah. how you use L&D as a truly strategic capability and how you upskill and reskill. These are all features of Agile, yeah. but it's also being used in other ways, this idea of Agile, so Agile working, so flexible working. Um, and oh my goodness, isn't there an opportunity there? I mean, if you look at all this future of work stuff, wouldn't that be one of the coolest things that we could all work less or work in ways that kind of worked around our own needs and other things? So agile working is another very important construct, which of course, yeah, again, HR has a massive role to play in, in unlocking that particular cultural dynamic of, of everybody thinking, well, it's about presences, I mean, it's about how many hours I spend in the office, I and mean, we've all got to be here nine to five, Monday to Friday, otherwise I can't run the business. Well, none of that is true. You know, we're just going to shift the mindset and then empower people, give them that, that accountability, which says, okay, if you're going to work flexibly, then part of the accountability is with you to make sure you're connecting in the right ways, rather than me sitting here and giving you a whole bunch of rules about when you're supposed to be around. And we are still in a paradigm of work that says, I'm also going to be largely measuring you on the basis of how many hours you're actually working. Um, and that is a very corrosive thing. It's already, I think, has been one of the issues when you look at part-time workers. Why more women do it for obvious reasons and why fewer men do it? Because you talk to many men, why won't they work flexibly? Might compromise my career. And what they're saying is that, that you, you come into this traditional work environment and presenteeism and being judged by how many hours I'm working or that they're working from home, all the kind of ways we describe these things. And then you're, you're evaluating a man and a woman, a woman working part-time versus a man. And the, the man's always in the face He's of the there, manager yeah. and there all the time. I have a massive bias towards that. So we've, we've got to teach and train managers how to deal with this stuff. But, but I, I'm very excited about the agenda. I, mean, I think there is a genuine opportunity. If you look at all this future work, I was, you know, the TUC has embraced this idea a lot. And they're saying, well, why shouldn't we have four-day working weeks? And I say, why not? We're actually even talking about potentially within the CIPD, so maybe we could, because we're really trying to embrace flexible working in the CIPD, and maybe that's our future. So, all right, as long as you're here and do what you need to do, on an average, you're here four days, well, that's yeah. fine. I mean, we're not going to reduce your pay to say, well, you're only working four days. And these are the kinds of mindset shifts we really need, I think. You know, if the root of it is about some of these cultural and behavioral mindsets and training managers and the rest of it, I mean, what's policy really going to do to help that? But, you know, we're looking at policy angles certainly looking at this kind of top-down cultural stuff and then trying to, I mean, it's also about creating the business case and stuff. I mean, whenever I, as I do, get involved in a lot of discussions about diversity and inclusion and so forth, I was talking at the LGBT plus event last night and I said, you know, one of the things we have to do to really shift, and it's back to some of the evidence that is, is show the business case for this stuff. Because I think it's still a lot of businesses look at all these ideas and then, well, that's just being socially and politically yeah. correct. And I'll, I'll, give it, you know, I'll give it the appearance of it, but it actually won't change anything. Um, whereas actually there's some very, very fundamental business drivers as to why this is a good thing. And, and if I take the whole inclusion idea of flexible working, but there's another one. Every survey you read, particularly of younger people, say, how do they want to work? Well, guess what? Work-life integration is really important to me. They don't get constructs of work. They say, 
when you're here, you can't go on Facebook, or you've just got to work these hours, and then you're you know, imagining that they can't work somewhere else or in some other way. So I think you're going to see pressure coming through the, the social angle, um, certainly more businesses. When I talk to the tougher sectors like manufacturing, and they'll say, oh, well, we couldn't possibly do that. I said, well, then good luck with your future workforce because you won't retain or attract all the skills you need. And then you'll start to see really hard business drivers for why businesses need to think about this stuff differently. Because nobody pretending it's easy. I mean, if, if you're running, which is why I like models like you know, McDonald's and so forth, they're, they're running whatever, I mean, their stores are running 18 hours a day, most of their workers are on zero hours contracts, but they've empowered the workers to get together and say, right, you figure it out between you. How are you going to run this store? And that's what's got to be different too. It's not going to be done by fancy work scheduling systems which frankly just disempower people. The best models we're seeing is where you're giving agency to your own workforce. So you want to work flexibly, great. Um, here's some broad parameters within which we will all understand that flexible working. Now you've got to work together to figure out how you're going to make this work. Um, that's real empowerment and trust and it's not what we've been doing. One of the themes that's been running through the talks that I've been attending while I've been at ACE has been the idea of workplace culture. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about recruitment, L&D, analytics, whatever. It always comes up and there's no better person to talk to about creating an ethical workplace than Shaquille Butt. He is the non-executive director of the CIPD and is a HR hero for hire. When I um, took over my HR team, I inherited my team, and it was a new team to me. Um, but I'd been in the organisation for a while, so I was very conscious of the perception that people had of how HR was um, perceived within the organisation. It wasn't a good perception. It was a very negative role. So I, asked, I wanted to understand what their own perception of themselves was, and I think it reinforced my understanding uh, and my concern, which was half the team felt they were there to represent the people. They were there you know, to offer you know, support, comfort you know, advice, you know, champion people issues, well-being and so forth. But the other half felt they were there, they were there representing management. And, and some felt they were an extension of management to the, to the point of actually saying, well, we are a management function, aren't we, Shaquille? Surely, you know, you don't understand what you're talking about. And to an extent, I had to, I couldn't disagree because there are certain things that as a HR professional, you deliver for management. Um, but there's also, you know, that, that responsibility for the people. So my personal view is that we are we, we do walk that thin line, but one thing that we have we should have no doubts about is that we actually represent the values. Mm. Now the values, some people you know we heard in today's conference that they're not always codified, they're not always understood. But as HR, that is, that is your opportunity to mm. then to actually say, okay, let's let's look at values and let's try to bring that to the forefront. Let's see if we can bring them alive. Let's see if we can embed them into our processes and our, the way we recruit people, the way we induct people, the way we measure performance, the way we reward performance, because that's exactly how you then shape your culture. Mm. That's what gets you to a better place. Now, picking up from some of the points from today's uh, session, it's not the, the, the sole responsibility of HR. But it is a responsibility to drive that and make that conversation happen because mm-hmm. no one else is in, the, in the workplace is going to be having that lens to look through. It's not going to be finance. Mm. They're looking at cost and effectiveness. It's not going to be in, even internal audit. They've got a very specific focus on normally financial fraud or you know, and a very narrow lens to look through. Mm. Whereas I think HR have that wonderful remit to actually look at all issues which are ethical uh-huh. from well-being to how we treat people with equity and reward and recognise it's, it's part and parcel of what we do. It's interesting as well what came across of... It's actually, to an extent, about letting go of the reins. And, you know, you can't just say in, you know, a hard text that 
our ethical standpoint, our value is trustworthiness and we're trustworthy. Mm. Actually, it's about having many different cultures within your culture and it's not about trying to prescribe something that mm. you then kind of push on people because that's not how culture operates. Well, I think every business decision, I mean, I, I mentioned earlier, uh, every business has, has a uh, finance dimension and a people dimension. But if, you're, if you've got values, what it does is it allows you to um, give you a, it gives you a, um, a framework to start that conversation. Whatever your business decision is, whatever your business discussion is, does it link back to the values? Is, is this what we really are there to do? And it comes back to, and to purpose. Is this taking us further forward to achieve this end, or is it actually taking us away from that? Because mm-hmm. quite often, um, I mentioned the, the statistic that 100% of employees steal from, from their employer. What's actually more worrying is another statistic, which is, I think it was, it's against a very high statistic, I think it was something, uh, uh, I can't remember the actual fig- figure, but it was carried out by HRD Connect, and it suggested that um, the reasons people behave unethically is because they, have, they haven't got enough resources, they haven't been given enough time, mm-hmm. they haven't got enough budget, they see others behaving unethically around them, the, the unethical behaviour is being rewarded by senior leaders, so it encourages more of that unethical behaviour. And it comes back down to that mantra of do more with less. Mm-hmm. And, and for too long, HR has been at the forefront of you know, efficiency drive, do more with less. And that's the wrong message. Yeah. They're actually forcing people to behave unethically because they will cover up failures. There will, there will be a blame culture because nobody wants to take responsibility. But that doesn't take, that's not really taking the organization forward. So it's mm-hmm. actually having a very hard look at what the culture is in the organization and actually saying this, isn't, this is actually taking us backwards not forwards uh-huh. and you're saying that HR isn't this mediator between the people and the management like it's kind of a you know it's a holistic approach mm. and they are kind of integral to the company but how can they push the envelope when talking to the C-suite how can they kind of challenge these potentially unethical behaviours and try and push this culture I think it's first by bringing it to the attention of, of the senior leadership team because there shouldn't be an assumption that they realise the implications of what they're doing because, as I've said, quite often a lot of decisions are driven by um, financial pressures, so that it might well be they haven't thought the, the long-term effects of what they're doing. So it's, it's not going in there with a, with a judgment uh, about the individuals at the, C, at the C-suite. Um, I do believe that the C-suite are in a very difficult position because they don't have all the answers, and any leader, any leader who pretends to have all the answers is not a leader, I believe, firstly, because we're living in a very complex world. There's so much challenge, so much change, so much complexity that if you haven't got all the right voices around you, and you've got just you know, people who, who are echoing what, what you're saying as a leader, you're in a very dangerous place. Mm-hmm. Now, the, ad, the way I would always proposition my, my viewpoint to a senior leader is, okay, I might be wrong. I, I'm actually willing to say I might be wrong. Mm-hmm. What if I'm right? Yeah, absolutely. What if I'm right? Because then I, I will look at uh, examples from industry where we've seen corporate scandals. I mean, the, it was only last week Google was on, in, in headlines for that mass walkout because of the way women were being treated mm. at Google. Last year, they got hit with a, uh, a fine for 2.4, 2.4 billion euros um, by the European Union. Not, not many people knew about that. I mean, it was, it was interesting this morning we had the you know, people, how many would applaud Google? I was like, 2.4 billion because yeah. of how they used that data. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and they were promoting their own products ahead of, you know, because you know, Google search would give you Google products. Mm-hmm. So, again, taking advantage of our naivety when we give our freedom over to, you know, these tech giants. Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. I think there's a real... There's so many business case arguments you can bring forward and say, you know, the, F- the CIPD's position, how to test whether something's ethical or not, I think is fantastic because I do think some of the questions they ask is, what would your mother think? Um, <laughs> what would you do if this is in the papers tomorrow? How would you respond? Uh-huh. If you've got any doubts, if, you, if, you're, if, you, if this hits the papers tomorrow and, you've got, and you're worried about that, 
then you know it's not the right thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and get more people around you so you can have a, have a robust conversation and challenge around the issue so you, you come to a better decision. Whether you were lucky enough to come this year and you're now one of the people dragging the suitcases back through Manchester or whether you weren't, I really hope that we've managed to give you a bit of a glimpse, a bit of an insight into what has been an absolutely fantastic conference. I'm absolutely knackered now, so I think I'm going to make a beeline for the popcorn stand that I've been eyeing up all day. But if you want to get in touch, please email us at pmeditorial at haymarket.com. 